Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of No Earthly Explanation with your hosts, Britt Barbieri and Don Schmidt. Now, before we get into this this uh, actual episode this week, which I believe is going to be probably one that everyone's really going to enjoy, there's something that uh, I wanted to talk briefly with you, Don, which I hope you're doing well. I miss you and I miss your face. Um, but really, how do you feel about Arrow? the new investigative office that opened up <laughs> on aerial space and underwater phenomenon, which they like to as, lump all that in. As though they've never investigated any of this over the last 75 years. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden now, as though this new phenomenon has arrived and uh, we're right on top of it, folks. And, uh, if they can squeeze a little bit more in their defense budget as far as some Congress, they, uh, like, like we've been joking, we can expect to see their final report maybe in 50 years. Yeah. Because we're still <laughs> waiting. Um, you know, Project Sign, their report was completed in 1949. And then the Secretary of the Air Force, General Hoyt Vandenberg, ordered it burned in a... Mm -hmm. Class A felony, I mean, the destruction of government documents. Just imagine that. So the entire project surmi surmise was, was destroyed. And then with Project Grudge, okay, then they came up with the explanation that it was all mass hallucination, nothing to see here, folks, and that was in 1950. And in Blue Book, the most famous of the three. So yeah, in many respects... This, this is nothing more than Blue Book 2. Yeah. And so. Um, <laughs> but I don't it, think it, it's going to be as extensive as Blue Book. I, I don't think it's going to be no, as no, immersed no, in the public as Blue Book was. Precisely, because at least Blue Book had regular press conferences. They at least right. were presenting case information to the media on a regular basis, whereas mm -hmm. Ola still remains on Capitol Hill, on Congress. And the yeah. fact that now it's our own representative in the Green Bay, Wisconsin uh, district, Michael Gallagher, who has proposed the very amendment that they will grant immunity to potential yep. whistleblowers regarding UFOs. Uh, we have been reaching out to uh, uh, Representative Gallagher. We're hoping to meet with him over the next few weeks, which is something that we can touch on in a, 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 a uh, a future episode, but he needs to be more educated, not only on the modern scope of the phenomena, but also on the history. The idea that we are not going to rest until they acknowledge that this phenomenon has existed here in the United States since 1947. And with that, they would open up the Roswell incident and so many of the subsequent uh, major cases that have happened uh, since then, uh, anything coming from the Pentagon, you're talking about the very arbiters of the cover-up. And mm -hmm. I'm about to believe their efforts mm -hmm. and their conclusions as much as uh, we would wait till hell would freeze over. It would be a first. <laughs> so the very people who have been deceiving us for 75 years haven't had these guilt pains. And now, well, now we're going to finally tell you the truth, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry. Not going to happen. No. Not going to happen. No. So let's not hold our breaths. 
No, exactly. Let's not get too excited and throw parties yet because it's not going to happen. I said I had this conversation the other day. I was like, no, let's not get too excited. This, I'll believe it when I see it when I'm, you know, reaching 2062. Anyway, so without further ado, I would love to bring on our guest who, again, he's also, this is kind of a crossover episode, which I love when we do these, but he has his own podcast and it's known as the Karate Priest Podcast. So I'd love to introduce to everybody, Father Dan. Dan, I'm not even going to say your last name because <laughs> I know I'll butcher it, as I mentioned earlier. So yeah. please introduce yourself and tell us about yourself so that our audience can get to know you. All right. Well, it was a pleasure to be on here, Britt. Uh, so my name is Father Daniel Duplantis, uh, and uh, I'm from South Louisiana. And uh, Duplantis is one of those Cajun names that I, I tell people it's not as complicated as it looks. It, there's no silent letters. There's no, it's not like Boudreaux or Thibodeau where there's a bunch of silent E's, A's, U's, X's, whatever you want to call them. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I'll see, I'll see what names that we would pronounce in, in like a, a Cajun French way. Uh, and I see them around the country and I'm like, wait, Bergeron, we say Bajeron, you know, or, or Orgeron, like we had coach Ed Ogeron at LSU and, and, uh, you know, and we're like Ogeron and they're like Orgeron, a very, you know, almost very Englishized. And so, no, Duplantis, <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> very straightforward name. But yes, or, I'm a priest as, of the, uh, yeah. Or as Mr. Looney would be actually Mr. Lunay, right? So Right, yeah. I guess the, the real French pronunciation of my last name would be Duplanty. Uh, but in here in South Louisiana, we say Duplantis. Um, anyway, I'm a priest of the Diocese of Homa Thibodeau, which is the, uh, if you look at Louisiana as a boot, we are pretty much the ball of the foot, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. We're about an hour drive southwest of New Orleans. Uh, so we're the Bayou country. When people think of like swamp people on the History Channel, that's us. Uh, you know, it, uh, which I always find is interesting because, you know, uh, I've been watching that show ever since it started airing when I was uh, like about a senior in high school. And, um, you know, they would put subtitles and I almost got offended. I'm like, why do they need subtitles? I can understand everybody fine. And then I went to uh, a summer program in Omaha, Nebraska a few years ago. And they said, we can't understand a darn thing they're saying without the subtitles. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so are we, is our accent that bad? We say sometimes tick, tick, tick. Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, so, it, it's, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be funny. on here. <laughs> well, when, when we did a, a, a documentary episode with Ozzy Osbourne a number of years ago, they had captions for everything he said. <laughs> yeah. So it's like they, they're just not taking any chances. They would sooner people would fully understand. Uh, we know when we, we, we've had like older witnesses who maybe mumble a little bit. Yeah, and often have captions. So, well, you shouldn't have that problem today. I'm, you know, you have the 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 oh, kind of professional oh, version oh. of Father Dan. I'm a totally different person when I'm in a boat with a fishing rod and a beer in the hand. So, yeah, <laughs> we shouldn't have any subtitle problems today. So, of really, course. that's when we need to actually know the other Dan is then we need to get into a boat, <laughs> go fishing. Oh, yeah. Okay, got yeah, it. Got definitely. it. Definitely. Yep. So, okay, so let's break this down. So. You're a karate priest. There's two elements to you, which I'm sure yes. you have multiple elements to you. So what got you into this to begin with? Like besides the priesthood, what also got you into karate? Like let's go down both roads rather fast because we, I'm sure Donna oh, yeah. both have yeah. a handful of questions for you. Oh yeah. I'm yeah. curious. I'm totally curious because everybody always has a story and I want to hear yeah. yours. So I, I grew up in a very Catholic family. And so, you know, we went to mass every single weekend. 
And uh, so, you know, I think for most, you know, Catholic families, when you, when you, your family is that devout, you know, the, the priesthood just becomes part of your, your everyday life, you know? And so it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of, you know, on the radar for most young Catholic boys like me growing up where, you know, you have some boys say, like, like I want to be a doctor. I want to be a firefighter. And uh, when I was in kindergarten, I threw off my, uh, my kindergarten teacher because I went to public school and I said, I want to be a priest. And in the public school system, she was like, I've never had a kid ever say this before like what do I do with this she had to go to a neighboring teacher uh down the hallway uh, another practicing catholic and say what do I do with this like you know and so uh, I want to be a priest from a very young age um and then with uh, martial arts uh, I started doing taekwondo uh when I was seven years old um and I you know got my black belt back in 2010 and uh and I've been at it ever since so uh this year it makes 21 years I've been doing taekwondo and uh did it throughout seminary. Uh, I have my third degree black belt right now. Uh, I'm a referee for USA Taekwondo, the national team organization. Uh, and uh, so just a lot of, you know, here and there um, doing a lot of like synchronization as well with, you know, the Christian faith and martial arts training. Oh, that's really cool. Yep. And I'm also an Air Force chaplain candidate. Uh, that's another part of, of uh, you know, kind of my upbringing is that um, I come from a military family. Both my grandfathers were in the Air Force and I have an uncle who served 20 years in the army. And so when I entered the seminary, uh, my uncle said, uh, there's a huge shortage of priests in the military. So you should be, you know, consider becoming a chaplain. So uh, I looked into it. So when I graduated with my philosophy degree, I direct commissioned to uh, the Air Force chaplain candidate program as a second lieutenant. Uh, and I've been in the reserves for the last six years now. I'll be reappointing to go active duty next July. Oh, Given wow. that you just mentioned as far as being a, uh, a military chaplain, and as you may know, my specialty and all the writing I have done has been on the Roswell incident of 1947. Right. And the crash recovery of the craft of unknown origin with its crew. And it was something I had postulated very early in the, the investigation. And as much as Roswell at that time was the headquarters of the 509th bomb wing, the first atomic bomb squadron in the world, where they selected the elite, the best in the military, officers, pilots, crew, doctors, nurses, that type of thing. The very base commander at that time was then Colonel William Blanchard, and he was a devout Catholic. And I always questioned, in so much as that he was a Catholic, and having such an unprecedented situation with the possibility of recovering life forms from elsewhere. Nonetheless, that he still would have seen them as human beings of, of, of sorts, but nonetheless from another planet, so to speak. And we would question whether he would have called in the base chaplain at that time to perform last rites. Yeah. And we that we were not far off the mark. In fact, we then tracked down the family of the base chaplain at that time. His name was, was Hankerson. And we discovered that his own children thereafter were questioning that possibility. Dad, did you, would you have performed any form of, uh, you know, death ceremony? over these bodies. And all he would say, according to the family, was the universe 
has more wonderment than we will ever, you know, ever, you know, comprehend that type of thing. Suggesting that it was bigger than, you know, even the answer he could give. So for yourself, Father, you, you, you do not, or, or, or do you see that this would have been out of the purview of the church? The idea that a base commander in dealing with this situation would have still called in a priest or the chaplain to perform some type of burial or, or death uh, uh, acknowledgement. Yeah, I mean, that's the the big question, you know, on behalf of the church. And, you know, when, when I was kind of, you know, in preparation for this episode, asking myself, like, what is the church's position on, you know, on these particular topics, you know, and, and I went to Catholic Answers, uh, which usually has great, you know, at least quick resources to, to you know, to give me answers. And, you know, the church doesn't really have an official position on, you know, when it comes to like, you know, uh, extraterrestrials and things of that nature, you know, it's something that it really lets the science kind of do its process before it gives any kind of pronouncements. Um, I think the big thing is, is this particular question for consideration is, you know, let's say that if this is an intelligent life form, and that's what, you, you know, we often associate with extraterrestrials is that this would be some kind of intelligent life form. Um, of course. You know, especially when we look at like, you know, anthropology, um, funny to use the word anthropology because, you know, it comes from a Greek word with like, you know, the study of man, you know, so this right. would be something that is, we would not say is, I guess, human race, but, you know, but we're looking at something, uh, studying what the thing is, if it's, if it, if it would be an intellectual being would mean that it would have a rational soul, right? It has the ability like to, to self-reflect. You know, um, and this is, you know, kind of going back to even like with Aristotle, you know, who distinguished between different types of souls. You know, you had the uh, the vegetative soul, the animal soul, and then the rational soul would be the highest form. Um, so like like we would say like, like with dogs, you know, it seems like dogs have a great capacity to love. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. of my, little, my mom and dad's 10 pound Chowini at home and just as loving as she is, um, is not able to self-reflect on that, right? And so that's what we're kind of looking at is if, if this is intelligent life, um, what does that mean in terms of its salvation? I guess you could say that is the big question, um, because so that, there we had to start, you know, maybe trying to connect some dots um, with if it is a rash, if it if it does have a rational soul, um, does that mean that it could sin? Does that mean it has a capacity for sin? Uh, does right. that mean that that soul at that point is also redeemable? And if it is mm -hmm. redeemable, um, does that mean that we say like the once for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross, does it atone for that sin? You know, like what, what does that have to do? Or even considering the fact that we say that as human beings were created in God's image and likeness, what would that mean for an extraterrestrial? And so that's a lot of the questions that, you know, uh, would have to be asked, you know, when it comes to this particular topic. Um, I think the position of the church really is though, that, you know, because we, we kind of want to let the science really play itself out. And before things are really kind of, you know, I guess become like, like confirmed law principle, things like that. The church is very hesitant to maybe give some pronouncements on these things um, unless there is, this is like textbook material, like, like the scientific community absolutely agrees, you know, this is the case. And that's the thing, you know, with all the, you know, you're talking about cover-ups and all kind of, you know, there's still a lot of secrecy around this. It's very right. difficult for the church to, to do its part on theologizing. Um, what has yet to really be brought into the light, I guess you could say. There's still a lot of darkness surrounding the topic. Three things. Um, one, of, uh, one of the things that struck me personally was uh, when Benedict was, was Pope. And this question mm -hmm. came up. What would the church's response be? 
for the arrival of visitors from another planet. And it made international headlines because his response was, quite frankly, we would baptize them. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We would baptize them. And then when he, uh, after that, and it was the first time, correct me if I'm wrong, Father, that the Catholic Church actually, from the Pope, from the Vatican, issued the proclamation that Jesus Christ was the savior of the universe. Well, yeah, we call him Christ the king of the universe. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So all encompassing, not just of the <laughs> yeah. race, but of the universe. So mm -hmm. to me, a demonstration that the church came to the fore and, and, and said that not only do we accept the possibility, but we embrace it. We would embrace it. We would take them in as, um, you know, a, a saved brothers and sisters, so to speak. And um, one of the things that, and the other thing, that when I had spent some time with Father Robert Spitzer. Oh, I love Father Spitzer. Yes. The Magis, the Magis Center in L.A. And we spent a good amount of an afternoon talking about Roswell. And he had offered, I said, and he asked, he said at one point, what would you like the church to do? And I said, well, I would love to see, I would love a chance to go through or have someone go through the archives for that first week of July of 1947. Because one of the people that I am convinced that then President Harry Truman would have immediately got on, got on the phone and called would have been the Pope, Pope Pius XII. In other words, what does the church know about this? What can the church tell me about this? Yeah. And it'd be nothing more than just being able to document a phone call, not the, uh, the nature of the conversation, but the fact that the president at the very time of Roswell contacted the Vatican. I think it would be more than coincidence. <laughs> I think it would be quite revealing. And um, I'm still gonna follow up on that at some point. But I love the fact that the church has demonstrated for many years that it is totally receptive, totally open. And I, have, I, I, I seldom find anyone in the church that has a problem with accepting. That is, the summer of 47, when the church put out that statement, it was the position of the church that the universe is most likely teeming with other creations. And I think I, I think it could not have been put as far as in a more glorious acknowledgement of the fact that there have been many creations throughout the universe. Yeah, well, I, I think. Oh, go for it. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, I like I, I playing off of what Don said. I think it would, you know, I, I back. I, I always come to the church for a lot of questions, and I think, it, it, like you said, King of the Universe. I think it would be very simple-minded of us to feel and to think that we are the only creation on a, on a singular planet. That's life that God created, you know what I mean? In a universe. And I think that how we perceive life is based on the science of the knowledge that we have for our own planet. But that doesn't mean that other planets would look like us as a, as a life form, 
And I think that that's an area of interest um, for some people to drive further, but I love the, the how the church recognizes it as a absolute possibility. And like Don said, you know, like the Pope did say, and people were in an uproar. I got emails about that where they were like, the Pope said they baptize an alien because in the head, the stigma of an alien is a little green, you know, a little green alien or a, right, a yeah. gray who's abducting yeah. people and hurting them. They don't really look at them as, as a, a being, because if it had been produced to the public in a different manner, such as we have found a life form on another planet or these vessels that we're seeing these objects in our atmosphere are being controlled by another being from another planet. We have found life. I don't think people would really have been so fearful of it as far as the stigma goes. And I don't think it would have been as much of an uproar as an acceptance from the Pope saying that at that time. What do you think? Yeah. I, you know, the, the statement of the Pope to me certainly highlights, as we would say, like the primacy of God. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fact that if we say Christ is the king of the universe, then if we, again, the idea, if we encounter intelligent life, something that has the ability to, to self-reflect, again, anything that we would associate with having rational faculties of an immortal, rational soul, then that's just that. That means it has an immortal soul that would be need, in need of saving. <laughs> and so that's why, you know, for Pope Benedict to say that, like, make, to me, makes absolute sense. You know, and I, I think there's also a misconception. I do want to highlight this as well. Um, that in many ways, like, you know, that like the church or, or that organized religion in general is, is in some way opposed to science. And I find that that's, that's not true whatsoever. The church is very much concerned with, um, with, with, you know, how does what we know to like to be scientific discovery, be scientific law, the fact, all these things, you know, what does then, what does that mean for us as human beings, you know, as created uh, in God's image and likeness, you know? And so I, I think of guys like, Father Spitzer, who I've heard his talks before, you know, wonderful source. I think back to another Jesuit brother of Father Spitzer, uh, Father Lamette, uh, who was the priest who discovered the Big Bang Theory. You know, That's and it. so the church has always been concerned, or even to go back even further, um, uh, the, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, Gregor Mendel, the father of modern genetics, was a Catholic yes. priest. Yeah, mm-hmm. a Catholic priest. So in many ways, the church has been on the forefront of scientific discovery. And so, yeah, it, it's, it definitely highlights this, the fact that the church will operate on what it knows to be known fact, that you can't even look at, like, for example, the book of Genesis as a literal play-by-play of how the world was created, um, because Genesis was written by Moses, who would not have been there, you know, at the creation of Adam and Eve. You're, you're, you're kind of putting the cart before the horse to say that, well, who's, who's sitting there writing this as Adam and Eve, supposedly the first humans, are being created? That means you have another, uh, you know, a, a first human before the first humans. So you see how, like, you know, the church takes this into account that there's a way in which we have to teach allegory for what allegory is. And at the same time, to notice that, like, scientific discovery and the scientific method works. And yeah. to acknowledge that the church has truly been a patron of science. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thousands of years, they've been the most prolific in, you know, foundation and the funding of schools and universities and hospitals. Many of the clergy are actively involved in science. We can consider the Jesuits. Uh, you're talking about their founding, directing, you know, 75 observatories around the world. Mm-hmm. Spitzer himself, that he was the director at the observatory in Arizona after it started. So, you know, the church remains, you know, the single private, most private provider 
of medical care and research facilities in the world. And, uh, and the thing is, it does it in all humbleness, in without fanfare, and yet, whether it's, you know, even the Jesuits promoting the, the Vatican Observatory or even Georgetown University, it's all with science as its main focus. And so that the church should never have to apologize for their lack of involvement. My God, I can't think of any institution that is more involved and certainly has the longest track record. Yep. And, the, and the church knows its place as well. Um, and, you know, we have a document even called Fetus et Ratia, which is, you know, faith and reason. And it talks about the relationship between the two. Uh, and the phrase we use is that, you know, faith and reason are really two wings of the same bird. And the mm -hmm. whole philosophy be behind that, and this is really the fundamental, you know, point here, is that, you know, faith and reason, faith and science answer two different questions. You know, we say that faith and theology, philosophy answer what we call first order questions, the why questions, you know, the questions that have to do with why is anything the way it is, versus what we say science answers the second order question, which is how. You cannot answer why with a how, and you can't answer how with a why. And so they answer two different questions. And so people sometimes will try to, to jump from one to the other, and yet say, well, no, the, they, they work together, but one does not substitute the other. Science does not substitute for religion. Religion does not substitute science. Precisely. And and, and wasn't it a, a Pope John Paul who specifically emphasized the very concept of faith and, and reason? Yes, he was a phenomenologist. Yeah. That they are, you know, they, they are connected. They, they can be harmonious as far as in one's scientific methodology in that even so much as science very often will begin with a preconceived theory as to the faith or the reason as to then what the end results are. That nonetheless, you still have to follow a scientific methodology. Even so much as the church in establishing whether a, a, an actual miracle has taken place, they approach it scientifically, correct, Father? Absolutely, yeah. And the thing is, to, 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 to me, you can't separate the two. No, you can't. They are two wings of the same bird. The bird will not fly without a wing. And to so, me, it just makes the, the miracle all the more spectacular when it is scientifically demonstrated. Absolutely. That this, yep. this healing, this cure, whatever. I mean, the cancer, the tumor is gone. And when the doctor is going, there is no scientific explanation. And then what is left? But the fact that it was a miracle. Yep. It was a miracle. Yep. So I want to take it back for a second. <clears throat> Something you had mentioned earlier about souls. Yeah. As we were talking about, you know, extraterrestrial life and souls and such. So there was a case that I studied pretty in depth because my family has lineage in Ireland. And they, on record, are known for the number one first incident of a werewolf case. Okay. And it happened with a priest. And he basically, in a long story short, was on a back road and a wolf came out in front of him, basically spoke to him. He just thought he was going nuts. And the wolf basically said that his wife was dying and he wanted the priest to please give her the last rites. 
the priest wrote this in his journals and I followed this entire story. I went through archives. I went through documentations. It's a truly incredible account. This happened in the 12th century in Ireland and in the West, in the West of Ireland. And basically when he approached the female werewolf as described in the records, he noticed that the wolf fur, when removed, there was a female body underneath it. And basically he felt this was evil, but he also felt it was human. And he felt that it was the right thing to do based on what the church would want him to do. So he gave the last rites to the wolf. Apparently the wolf died and the other wolf thanked him and ran off. Well, he thought he was just nuts and that he went against the church. Basically wrote a letter to the Vatican explaining what he had done, wanting to know if he could be forgiven of his sin for doing this and so forth. Months later, they brought him to speak with him. They brought him to the Vatican to speak with him. And the Vatican had written down that he didn't do anything wrong. He did what was asked of him as a priest to save the souls of those that were asking, right? He was doing his job, his, his duty at the time that he didn't do anything against the church, that in fact, from that day forward, it was then written in the 12th century that should a priest ever come in contact with another werewolf, they are doing God's work by giving that werewolf their last rites to save their soul. Wow. And that was written in the Vatican in the 12th century. So flash forward to today, where you have our own Pope saying, I baptize him. I feel as though the church continues to have an open arm and an open understanding that we don't fully know our universe and our world around us, but as the church of doing God's work, we have to stay open-minded and do what's right by God. God would not turn on anyone if asking this of them. So I found it, here's this ginormous time gap, but it went all the way to the Vatican and the Vatican basically told him he did everything right. They were proud of him for doing what he did. And then it's noted now <laughs> at that time, literally on document writing, the word werewolf shall be given last rites. And I found that completely compelling because werewolves really didn't start coming about till 13, 14, 15th century. And here's this original moment in history and a priest was granted this all the way to the Vatican. Wow. Yeah, this, this is the first I'm hearing of anything like this. This is, you know, but you, you bring up the, like the, again, like the, the kind of underlying point is like the stance of the church being very open to something like this. And I, the, the word I like to use is discerning, you know, very discerning of like, well, well, wait, like, let's assume that if there is a rational soul here, then yeah, there, it, it needs saving. It needs to be baptized, you know, or it needs last rites. Um, you know, things of that nature. I, I think it's the same kind of principle that, you know, when we look at perhaps a, a, a very, you know, hot button issue in the headlines today, uh, which is abortion, you know, looking at what happened with Roe versus Wade being overturned, that the church will say mm -hmm. too, well, wait, like if, if, you know, if the fetus, if there's even the possibility that it is human life, that we believe that it is conceived with a immortal rational soul, even though that soul does not, is not really able to actualize itself through the, the physical development of the fetus, at least that that soul is present, that, yeah, that mm -hmm. soul is a human soul that, that, that needs saving. And so, right. yeah, that's, that's, it's the same kind of philosophy with that. I mean, it's no secret that the Catholic church is, is one of the biggest proponents um, of, of the pro-life side, you know? So that's, again, it's that whole concept of like, well, wait, if there is a rational soul here, 
then yeah, there is a whole question of salvation that you have to mm -hmm. now answer. Yeah. And, that, and that's interesting. And that's true. Exactly. And that's the point that I think is a lot of people misstrewn with all of this. They get it all mixed up. And, and I, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's a valid point to be made. And I think it's, it's more incredible that it's being brought up in this type of topic with talking about you know, we're talking about paranormal spectrum of elements here, including extraterrestrials. So this is, right. for me, it's fascinating because I believe in it all, so. Yeah. Rich, I find it interesting though, that even in the New Testament, mm -hmm. as much as Christ himself would drive demons out of the possessed and they were, they were called demons. Mm-hmm. And that, as you described, that even the use of the word a werewolf yeah. or something to that effect, that it made that distinction. And mm -hmm. that, recall, did it try to draw any connection to this being any form of demonic? No. Uh, was that? No, the priest ended up telling whoever the main gentleman was that he spoke to at the time that he, who was at his, basically his home base where he was in West Ireland. Then basically he ended up telling him that at the end of it, he didn't feel it was demonic. He felt that these, these people were cursed, that somebody had cursed them. And mm. it, it actually ended up becoming a very long history for this family that it did come out that they were cursed they were under a seven-year curse that every seven years uh two of theirs would turn into a werewolf and then after that seven years they would go back to being human and another two from that line that bloodline would then continue to be a werewolf and so the priest in his writings he admitted i did not believe it was evil after i spoke with the wolf and right. i saw what i saw it was a true curse. And the word curse was brought up, not a hex, not anything. And at that time, he, you know, I guess believed that there was a lot of, of evil happenings that were going around with like witchcraft type style. Um, but in this case, he used the word multiple times cursed. So even in the last document from the Vatican, it was just plain and simple. You did the right thing. These individuals were cursed. And by doing so, you save their soul. But, but Father Dan, you would agree that in every case of anyone dabbling or trying to communicate with any type of psychic force, any type of paranormal presence, that it's a fine line and not knowing whether you are actually confronting either good or evil. That yeah, there, there's a, a lot of ambiguity that that tends to happen there because there's and this is where, um, you know, when we're getting into that realm of like, you know, uh, occult practices specifically, you know, um, it, it tends to sometimes be very open ended, like just very openly inviting of, you know, sometimes you even hear just like, quote unquote, spiritual entities um, right. or becoming, you know, and this is where I think there's a, you know, a danger with some Eastern religions, you know, Eastern spirituality. Um, and, uh, and I see this in the martial arts world as well. In fact, I'm actually, you know, kind of researching that right now, um, is, is when you look at like some of these practices, like from like the Buddhist and the Taoist traditions, um, of, you know, uh, in, in karate specifically, again, I do Taekwondo, but in karate, um, that there are some kata, some of the forms that they do, 
Um, and sometimes the way that it's taught is, is you have some teachers who teach that you to, through the practice of kata, to become a conduit of spiritual forces uh, or opening and closing doors to spiritual worlds. Now, the church would say, you have to really, you know, be careful that if you're participating in activities like this or, or yoga for the same purposes, you know, um, that, you know, we don't practice this for the sake of opening and closing doors to spiritual worlds. We don't do this to, you know, to allow spiritual entities to come into us. That is, you know, precisely inviting of demonic entities uh, to come in, in, in to wreak their activities, which there are various activities. People often think of things like possession first and foremost, but there's, I think it's like four or five different types of demonic activities. So yeah, you do have to be very careful with that. You know, there is, you know, it, it's, People can be very kind of ambiguous about it, but there is a fine line between, you know, you know, intending to to pray, you know, but then also at the same time, just being open to whatever spiritual entity is out there. Come on in, you know, and that's precisely how people get into things like curses and hexes and, you know, things of that nature. And the dark side would tend to present itself as being the side of light, the good side. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because who in their right mind? Would, right. It, it, that's the whole thing is that there is no truth whatsoever. If we're looking, especially at, at, at Satan, you know, or, or demonic entities, there is no truth in them whatsoever. You know, the reason that they're able, you know, that, that we're able to sin, that, that Satan's able to tempt us into sin is because he has convinced us that an evil is actually good. Mm-hmm. He has convinced us of the goodness of something that is evil. Everything is distorted for Satan. So, yeah. And it, so on this topic, this is where I want to really dig my heels into, because I All think right. that <laughs> I, I, I did a lot of years investigating the paranormal on as far as like ghosts and demons and, you know, demonic entities and things like that and locations. And so, but I think that there is a large misinterpretation between what the church does with exorcisms and exercising a human being and versus becoming a demonologist. You know, demonologist, correct me if I'm wrong, is learning basically the history of demons, knowing the demons, knowing the, you know, basically the satanic Bible and everything else that pertains to demons as to where within the church, it is a whole school study that takes you to learn about exorcisms, teaches you basically true cases where this has happened. And they almost have their own investigators helping with what is considered an actual possession versus what could be an actual mental illness. Now, if I'm wrong, please correct. But that was from my own research that I've come to find along the way that there is a, a massive distinction there. And like I had asked you earlier, of course, with the, yep. you know being a demonologist or learning about it, I just really think that there needs to be some, some good clarity out there. So let's get into that because that's where I want to see the difference and how the yeah. church handles all of this. Yeah. So no, that, that, that's your, that's the, the correct line of thinking, you know, everything you just said. Um, it is, it, it is a specialized ministry, we would say, um, you know, to say that a practicing exorcist um, is what we call, it, they, they partake of what we call a ministry of healing. That when we look at things like exorcism, you know, we could call it spiritual warfare without a doubt, you know, uh, but primarily it is a ministry of healing. The idea is you are trying to heal someone who has been afflicted by demonic entities. Um, and so on the, on the church side of things, you know, uh, an exorcist is a priest who is a, appointed by his bishop specifically to that ministry. Not every priest is an exorcist, but every exorcist is a priest. Um, and so it is a very specific ministry. And, and, you know, in the last couple of decades, the Vatican has really tried to, 
uh, head up an initiative to have an exorcist in every single diocese around the world. Um, wow. And so um, that particular point was highlighted in the film, I think it was from uh, about 2009-ish, uh, The Right, R-I-T-E, The Right. Yes. Um, and so that. that's mm -hmm. based on a true story. In fact, uh, the priest who it was made about, um, Father Gary Thomas, uh, there's actually a book by the same name, um, which actually catalogs the true story of, of Father Gary Thomas's training as an exorcist apprentice in Rome. Um, of course, the movie takes some liberties, but Father Gary Thomas actually came talk to my seminary a few years ago. Um, and so, yes, it is a very specific ministry. You have to go and train for this. Not every priest is, is trained. Uh, in the seminary, we did have a few um, formation conferences on like the right of exorcism to understand, you know, what happens, to understand the process. Yes, it is a whole investigative process. Um, every exorcist has a team uh, of, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, MDs, uh, as well as people who are gifted in spiritual healing prayer and intercessory prayer. Um, it is a whole team effort and it's a whole investigative process that if there is a suspected possession um, that they, they do send the whole team in and it usually takes, you know, probably several weeks to, if not months to actually investigate the situation to again, root out any kind of psychiatric problems, um, things of that nature. Um, and then once you finally get down to, so yes, we do use the science there, you know, to, to then come to a conclusion and say, you know, this is beyond, this is supernatural. There is no natural explanation as to why this person is behaving the way they are. And then from there, you know, the exorcist by himself can't make the determination uh, to do the rite of exorcism. Uh, he actually has to have the bishop's permission and delegation. And this is a key thing too. The demons actually know if the exorcist has or does not have the delegation. In every single case, the exorcist has to go to the bishop and say, I need your delegation to perform the rite of exorcism. And because there's, there's something about apostolic succession that the bishops have the fullness of the priesthood and the authority of the apostles for them to actually bind and loose as, as Christ gave to the apostles. And so the demons know that. <laughs> the demons are very aware when that's there and when it's not. Uh, and so there is, it is a really interesting kind of, you know, topic, but again, the whole concept of binding and loosing here on earth. Father, wow. have, there ever, have there ever been any studies as to the emil, the very persona of, of, of people that open themselves up to become possessed? Uh, are they any particular uh, age group or even gender? Uh, are they people almost like those that fall prey to religious cults that they are more susceptible to becoming brainwashed? It, it, or is it just something so random that one could be the most devout Catholic in the world and yet still become possessed? Yeah, I'm not, like, I don't know too much about like the statistic between like gender or, or age group or anything like that. Um, typically, you have to be inviting in some way um, of, of demonic activity for you to actually become possessed. You know, uh, it's usually, you know, in, in the movie The Right, this is where there's a lot of Hollywood liberties. Um, the priest, uh, like the, 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 the priest under whom um, the younger priest is, is mentoring and apprenticing under becomes possessed himself. Like that's a Hollywood liberty right there. Um, you have to actually be very, not to say priests can't become possessed, you know, priests are human, you know, um, but there has to be some sense of 
of the person being somewhat inviting of either by just consciously saying, you know, just being inviting of it, or even inviting through their actions. You know, we would say uh, like, this is where like mortal grave unrepented sin uh, mm-hmm. is oftentimes, you know, where a lot of, of demonic activity will enter into um, because it's you're, you're, you're specifically when you get into mortal sin, you're, you're relying so much really on, on these demonic activities that you're becoming uh, the embodiment of these of, of, of evil. And so, yeah, there is a oftentimes, yes, occult practices are is where we get a lot of, of uh, complaints about demonic activity. Um, as you can imagine, you know, being close to New Orleans, uh, where there's very much a voodoo culture, you know, um, yes. there's a, you know, I've, I've gotten phone calls even in my diocese to investigate, you know, um, that's thing too, like I'm not an exorcist, but priests can go and do like house blessings and stuff. As a priest, I can do minor exorcisms. Um, there are minor exorcisms that any baptized Christian can perform by nature of their baptism. Uh, it's just, it's the right of exorcism itself. Um, a major exorcism that has to be done by an actual exorcist. But there's all kind of minor exorcisms that people can do. Um, I mean, shoot, at baptism itself, baptism is a, a form of exorcism. Uh, and so, so yes, there are minor exorcism prayers that like I'll go do, you know, if, I, if, if you know, you could tell that, um, you know, there's something, something's going on in the house. Now, you know, to do a minor exorcism, you don't have to go through that whole investigative process. Usually I'll, you know, uh, I have a book of deliverance prayers that I'll bring with me to, you know, see what, what might be needed. Is it, you know, the blessing of a home, protection of a family, uh, binding prayers, um, things like that, you know, setting an actual protection perimeter around, you know, people's homes, things of that right. nature. Um, and these are actually very accessible. In fact, actually, I have my phone right here. Um, there's an app called the Exorcism app. Um, and on this app, uh, it has prayers in, in there's, there's different categories. They have prayers for priest exorcist, deliverance prayers to be used by any priest, prayers for those assisting priests in exorcism and deliverance praying. So obviously it's presuming someone who's not a priest, uh, blessings used by priests, and then deliverance prayers for the laity. Um, so a lot of this was compiled by Father Chad Ripperger, uh, who has a book uh, specifically like deliverance prayers uh, and minor exorcisms for the laity. So there are minor exorcisms that lay people can use. Um, it's, it's something that's actually more accessible than most people think. Um, and that's, again, maybe perhaps something that, you know, uh, Satan wishes to keep hidden because if he realizes that people could be empowered by their baptismal priesthood um, to perform minor exorcisms in their everyday lives, that's a game changer for the everyday Christian in terms of their salvation and their struggle, you know, um, in fighting against sin and practicing virtue. Um, but it is, you know, the, the concept of minor exorcisms is very much accessible. It's just most people don't realize it. No, no, no. And it, it, only by what they've seen in the movies, right? Right. It's it's funny you say this because there's two, well, there's two things. So I remember I did so much research when the movie Emily Rose came out. Oh, about the exorcism yeah. of Emily Rose. Yes. And I remember seeing that and I went, it's based on a true story. I have to know more. Cause I was always, you know, I was baptized Catholic. I always grew up very yep. faith driven and I, I always had an interest. And I remember, I think I was like 12 when I told my mom, I was going to become an exorcist. Like I was going to do it. And she was like, there's no way that's not, you want to be married and have kids. And that's not a life you want, if you're going to have all that. And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess I can't have them both, but I want to do it. Like I had that in my head, you know, like I was going to, this is, I was going to do it. I wanted to have it all. I wanted to be a cryptozoologist, a ufologist, 
uh, exorcism. I wanted to help the world, you know, at, yeah. when I was a kid, you know, I still do, but I, I have to be more realistic. But so when that movie came out, I immediately dug into it. And of course the real story is about Annalise Mitchell. And I remember watching her exorcism tapes, like the real tapes. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, one, this poor thing. And then reading what the parents had said, you know, my daughter, she was young. I mean, my God, she was what, 22? She was fresh in college, 20, 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there. And, you know, they had a picture of her and she was so vibrant and happy going to college, like just a regular girl. And then watching her tapes, she looked like she was 90 years old and her body was so, it looked so broken and it was so horrific to watch, but there were times where it sounded like multiple voices coming from her voice. And it just always bothered me going, how could someone that seemed so innocent, who seemed to have been raised right, who knew God, knew faith, knew everything, have had something like this so horrific happen to her? And I guess the exorcisms lasted for well over a year. And yeah. in her journals, it had said, you know, basically she had been visited by the Virgin Mary. And mm-hmm. Mary had told her, I will take you from this pain, I will remove you from this. And I think. And one of the writings, she said, I don't know if it's the devil or if it's really Mary. I don't know what to do. And I remember the, the, the priest had implemented that into his workings with her to explain, we're going to help you. And if, she's, if, it's, if it's her and she's here and you want to be relieved of this, we won't stop you. You can go freely with her if that's what you want. Ultimately, it's your soul. And you have to do what's right for your soul. And I just remember hearing that, but looking at her, it was so just, um, it was incredible to watch the work of, of basically what the priests do, but Annalise Mitchell, her story and everything she went through, but now hearing it like you just laid out, you know, it, it's, it's crazy to think that just yeah. maybe she was unknowingly inviting this in because she didn't understand what she did wrong. She just never went to parties. She wasn't that girl. She didn't even yeah. play with a Ouija board. Um, apparently there wasn't, there was notes that they said she was involved in like a bloody Mary, you know, type of situation, like one of those things. And so I sit there and I go, was that an opening? Was that something based off what you just said? Could that have invited something in unknowingly and caused this for her? I mean, it's just so it's baffling to me. It's truly baffling. I do want to break down a couple of things about, you know, that particular case, uh, which, you know, kind of preface that uh, we would, most priests and exorcists agree that the exorcism of Emily Rose um, is probably the most accurate Hollywood portrayal of exorcism. Um, So that is the one that, you know, we we would say that over the right uh, and obviously over the original exorcist movie. Um, but the exorcism of Emily Rose, yeah, there's a couple of things to, that, you know, that really break down there, you know, is, is, you know, um, one of the things you mentioned is like the fact that, you know, multiple voices coming out of her. Um, when you mm-hmm. look in the gospels, I think it's in the gospel of Luke, uh, when Jesus cast out, uh, legion, right. You know, and, and he asks, you know, for his name and, and, and the demon responds, my name is legion for we are many. Um, that's mm-hmm. oftentimes what happens right. in exorcism. And, and, and that combines with also the, the fact that, that this particular case, as well as most cases of exorcism, normally aren't solved by one 
appointment with an exorcist. Like in, it usually takes several sessions going through the right, either partial in, in parts or, or in whole of the right of exorcism. Because what happens is normally possession is never just one demon. It's normally many. And the idea behind that is as there is a hierarchy of angels, there's an inverted hierarchy of demons. And so with that, usually the possession is kind of controlled by one of the bigger demons. And he usually takes, because of their selfishness, um, they will normally take the smaller, weaker demons as shields. And so that's why there's normally multiple demons in a particular possession. And so the, the, it's the role of the exorcist at that point to weed through them all and to get rid of all of them. And so he has to start usually with the weakest ones. And that bigger demon will continue to just throw weaker demon after weaker demon in front of him as a shield until you get <clears> finally to the, the bigger demon. And, and that's where the, the really difficult work becomes. Um, but then also I want to, you know, kind of go back to the role of the Virgin Mary, you know, because in that particular case, um, yes. you know, it, it really highlights Mary's role in the fact that the demons and Satan himself are terrified of the Blessed Mother. Um, in fact, you know, in, I know some exorcists would say that the demons and Satan himself are more terrified of the Blessed Mother than they are of Jesus because... It's one thing for Satan to have been done in by God, you know, for Satan to not overcome God. Satan couldn't even tempt, you know, he tempted Jesus, but couldn't get Jesus to sin. That's because mm -hmm. Jesus is God, right? He's divine. Right. Whereas Mary, here is a creature, a lowly creature who is not God, a servant who really undermines everything Satan stands for. And he could not get her to fall. And so because of that, because she is a creature that he has no power over. That's what upsets him. That's what terrifies him more than anything. And that's why, you know, the rosary is such an important part um, of the rite of exorcism, you know, praying just for the everyday life of, of, of a Catholic is to pray the rosary because Mary is that much powerful over the demonic and over Satan. Because again, Satan had no power over her who was a lowly creature. I have that is... Sorry, Go Don, go ahead. I just happened to catch even Elvis, a song I had never heard him sing before, entitled The Miracle of the Lady. And mm -hmm. he recites the Hail Mary in song. And it was powerful. It was moving. And as Elvis in his spiritual, his own, you know, uh, as far as, you know, uh, performance of gospel music, that type of thing. So it just it just shows that for people whose faith surpasses their very concept of what is scientific, what is acceptable as truth, as opposed to what we can't see and yet we still believe, what we don't understand, but yet we still rely. And is it your experience, Father, that that is as, as supernatural as the devil, Satan, Lucifer would be that they still seek out a host that whether it's a serial killer or someone that clearly is possessed that they, they, they need human beings to essentially perform their dastardly you know, deeds. In a way, I, you know, I, I'm not per se, you know, an expert. I might sound like I know a lot about this topic, but not saying I'm an expert when it comes to this. Um, 
I think a distinction I would certainly have to make in that category would be to say that when it comes to possession, the demonic entities can possess the body, but they cannot possess the soul. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's what what happens is that in these manifestations, you know, um, we would say that while someone while while uh, while being possessed and while the 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 demons are manifesting, um, it is not the person who who they're possessing present, right? So we would say that anything that happens during a manifestation, the, the person's not culpable for it because again, uh, they have no control at that point, you know, um, because the soul cannot be possessed. Uh, it's the body. Uh, and so that's, you know, it, it's, again, that's where I'm, I'm kind of running into my limits there um, as to, you know, is, do, does, does, do the, the, the demons feel like they, in order to accomplish their work in the world, that they have to do this maybe in a way. Um, one thing, and this is why, you know, you know, the demonic and the occult always seem to go hand in hand is because two things that occult practices normally uh, try to achieve for the person is knowledge and power. And, you know, having more knowledge and more power than what we really need is really the sin of pride that caused the demons to fall, you know, because they were all angels. Um, mm-hmm. Lucifer was the most beautiful of all the angels. And so it's, again, it, it's kind of that seeking of knowledge and power. So I can see for, you know, for the, the, the on the demon's perspective, um, the sense of possession certainly gives them a sense of power um, over human beings. And maybe that's something that's something that they certainly seem to thrive off of. Uh, but again, you know, the fact that, you know, you know through the, the Paschal mystery, through, you know, the merits of the saints, and this is why Mary, as well as many of the other saints, are so important in the rite of exorcism, is because there is, you know, value to their deeds. There's merit by their deeds and their prayers uh, as a communion of saints um, that o- certainly overpowers anything Satan can do. So it's interesting because there's, okay, so I want to bring in something, like I mentioned earlier, I did paranormal investigating as far, I mean, paranormal is a large scope. So to bring it in, I went ghost hunting, as they say. And um, so I, you know, there, I have my own theories on so much, but I firmly believe a lot of the times I'm dealing with demons. I don't believe that it's a ghost or a loved one from the other side, haunting and tormenting these people. Um, and the reason I say that is because, you know, and I'd like to know your take as far as the church stance on ghosts, phenomenon, things like that. But an incident that I want to touch on to bring up into this topic is I was investigating in a location with our with our spirit box. And of course, the spirit box brings through voices SB7, which a lot of investigators know and use. And a voice had come through. Now, nobody in my team, and a lot of people don't know this, and I don't talk about vocally and us ask because it's my personal business of my own um, armor that I put on before I even go out to investigate if I need to, if there's a location or whatever, is I always wear my rosary. I always go in, as I like to mentally say, with the armor of God, you're not going to deceive me. I know what you are and I will call you out like end of day. That's how I work. And so I was on a location and they kept basically, my name was called multiple times And then it basically said it didn't like me. And when I got up, they were like, oh my God, it's saying it doesn't like you. And I, so I stepped up, you know, closer to where the SB7 was, where my group was doing this is like, Brittany, we heard your name again. It's saying it does not like you. And immediately I'm like, of course it doesn't. I know why, because I'm praying and I'm protected and I know what it is. I know why it's torturing this person or the location. And I stepped up and I said, hey, why don't you like me? Tell us why you don't like me. And the next word was rosary. Mm, yep. And the entire group 
was like, rosary? What does that mean? And I remember they were like, Brittany, what do you, why does it say rosary? And I pulled it out from underneath my my shirt, yeah. which was a high collar. I always wear like a, a black high collar, you know, because I just keep myself yeah. safe. And I pulled it out and I said, yeah, you're right. I have it on and I know what you are. And the whole thing yeah. went silent. Nothing yeah. came back through. It all went silent. And it, I always just found that interesting. And what you just said just validated that even for myself of that incident, because I always felt so like empowered by that, that it was like, yeah, yeah you know, what I have with me and you didn't like it, you know? Well, that's, a, that's as- a very, yeah, fundamental principle when it comes to, you know, figuring out if there is a demonic presence there uh, is an aversion to the sacred. So things like holy water, crucifixes, rosaries, blessed objects, St. Benedict medals, um, which have yeah. minor exorcism prayers on them, you know, um, there's, there's, there's an aversion to sacred things um, on behalf of the demons. And so, yeah, that's not surprising at all. Um, you know, and, and yeah, you know, there's, there's, I, I remember a story that Father Gary Thomas told us when he came to talk to us at the seminary. Um, and he said, this is almost in a way where sometimes like the church is, I guess, you know, it's, it's speculative theology, uh, will sometimes maybe be in a little bit of conflict with its practical theology. Um, because the idea is that, you know, at least like, you know, doctrinally is that when a person dies, the soul goes straight to its individual judgment. But he said there was one point during an exorcism where, you know, the first entity that manifested itself was, it, it didn't seem like it, it, it was very ill-meaning. Um, and so in this thing too, an exorcist, you know, will not normally engage in conversation with the demon, uh, except to ask it just very specific questions that are usually, if anything, try to get its name. Because the idea is if you have its name, you have power over it. And so that's always the biggest struggle is to get its name. Once you have its name, it's almost a game over from, from that point on you know, you can specifically cast the demon out by name to the foot of the cross. Um, but they will also sometimes ask, you know, um, they usually ask its name, try to get its name, and then ask, how did you enter this person? Because that will then often help the, the exorcist to, to, you know, to focus the right of exorcism on, you know, various parts of the body or, or against various sins that were committed that were the, the, the channels through which the demonic entity entered. Um, and so, yes, that's how usually, you know, so, but anyway, with this particular entity, Father Gary said, um, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't come off like a demon. And so he asked, you know, mm-hmm. what is your name? And he's the, the end of the name said, my name is Mark. And, uh, and he said, what are you doing here, Mark? And he said, I'm afraid to go to judgment. And so, wow. so that, that, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, wow. Like, you know, so perhaps when it comes to you know, things like that. And this is because somebody, I think one of the seminarians had asked him, you know, what does the church believe about like ghosts? And he said, I, you know, we really don't have it defined, but he said, that makes me think that there are souls that are afraid to go to judgment because then he asked, well, Mark, if we pray the rosary and ask the blessed Virgin Mary to take you to the Lord, would you go with her? And he said, yes. And so I started praying the rosary. And then the next thing that the entity said was, I smell roses which is often associated with the blessed mother. And so in yes. that, that particular entity left peacefully because what normally happens for exorcism is that, you know, when it comes to the right of exorcism, uh, normally the demonic entities do not leave peacefully. They leave like, you know, you know, gnashing their teeth and, you know, clawing with their nails. And, uh, but no, this particular entity left peacefully as they were praying the rosary. And so that's, you know, so again, we don't really have a defined theology of like ghost and, you know, but that certainly makes us think that there are souls that are afraid of judgment. And so perhaps maybe there are some lingering 
um, souls that, you know, that need prayers. And this is why, you know, we pray for the souls wow. of the dead. We pray for souls in purgatory. We pray for souls that, you know, we say that that need that extra help, perhaps if they are afraid of their individual judgment, you know. Uh, and so there is, yeah, there's a whole lot that happens here that the church continues to define based on its practice. And I'm curious with that, with purgatory, because I've always wondered, you know, because the Bible says to be absent of the, bo- the body is to be present with the Lord. And so if, if you, and I've always thought and wondered, and I know that the church, we do pray for those in purgatory. There's a prayer for that. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I just always wondered even growing up. Is it possible that when we have these ghosts and like you just stated an incredible story that I wish the viewers could have seen, I had chills and goosebumps and pretty much could have broke down in tears because these, <laughs> yeah. those types of stories are so moving to me yeah. because I believe yeah. it so much with my faith and in my core. Right. And so it makes you wonder if purgatory of what we perceive and see as purgatory is our earth, let's just say hypothetically. And the souls that are trapped within the purgatory are those that are afraid of their own judgment, that they're afraid that their sins are not forgivable, even though God says all sins are forgivable. If you ask me for forgiveness, I will forgive you. A sin is a sin. And I just wonder if those souls are in a purgatory, but that purgatory is here and they are scared and they don't. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that because for me, like this is the thing is purgatory is for souls that are destined for heaven. It is a joyous okay, thing okay. to make it to purgatory. I think mean, purgatory we, we describe as, you know, we, it's a place of purgation. The idea is that okay. nothing, nothing impure can enter heaven. Thus, you know, there are people who die and even in death, there's an attachment to sin or the effects of sin on their soul. That's what purgatory is for. There are some people okay. who do die in, in without any kind of attachment to sin on their soul, you know, but the idea is that purgatory is there for souls who are destined for heaven. So like I always tell people, if you make it to purgatory, kiss the ground when you get there, because that means eventually you, you do make it to heaven. And so what happens is the judgment always happens first, the individual judgment. And then from there, you're, you're either it's the judgment is either hell, eternal damnation for which there is no coming out of or purgatory. You know, if you need that extra that kind of cleansing, that purgation of the effects of sin to get into heaven or straight to heaven. So that's the thing. Purgatory is not like a state wow. of limbo. And that's, that's often a common misconception is that purgatory is a state of limbo. No, it's for souls who are destined for heaven, who have been judged as worthy of eternal reward. They just need that extra purgation so that they can fully enter into that perfection in heaven. So let me ask you this. As Christ rose on the third day, there was the three day right, right in between. There's a, a process that, well, actually, I wouldn't even say a process, but there is a, a, a weird line. And I think Don will even agree with me on this. When someone passes away, there's an immediate within like 48 hours, 24 hours, they're like, I saw my dad. My dad visited me. He talked to me. My mom visited me. Whatever the case was, whoever it was that passed, they see them in that window. And then it's like, they don't see them anymore. And so I wonder and I want to know what your personal take on this could be is, is it the same with, with Jesus in that three day is our soul allowed before we transcend that three day window? I wonder like, yeah, like I'm not Christ, sure to be able um, to visit. Yeah. I'm no, really I just mean sure. like your personal yeah, yeah, yeah. opinion. Well, Cause and this is the thing too, we have to remember is that when we look at like our anthropology, uh, especially from a theological perspective is that, you know, our bodies and our souls exist in time. But our souls mm-hmm. are immortal. Um, and so with that, there is in, in some sense an eternity associated with our souls. 
um, eternity okay. in the sense of not not infinite as God is, right? Because there's obviously a right. beginning to our souls um, that doesn't extend to infinity that direction, but certainly to the end of time, um, right? We, we say we have immortal souls. So as to, is there a window? I'm not really sure, you know, um, that's, that's certainly beyond my expertise. Um, you know, certainly there are stories of people who like, you know, if they're in the hospital, they'll code several times. The heart yeah. stops, but they keep coming back. So obviously what it seems like is that the soul does not leave the body as soon as the heart stops. You know, it seems like there certainly is like a window of time, again, if in the event that you can resuscitate a person, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so that's the thing. I don't think we really know how to pinpoint exactly at what moment the soul leaves the body. It's just that we certainly know that what the, the final definition of death for us is exactly when the soul leaves the body. So even though the, the, the body, again, the heart might stop. Um, but again, because we know by resuscitation that that doesn't necessitate death. Um, I would say that I guess there's some kind of window. I just don't know how long that window would be. Um, I know on my end as a priest, you know, we're told that, you know, if the person like if there's if you look at, on, on the monitor in the hospital and there's no heart rate, and no pulse, like everything's flatlined, you know, um, like we don't typically give anointing of the sick or last rites in that case because we the sacraments are not for people who are deceased. Um, we would then we would probably give them, you know, there, there are blessings over someone who has passed that we would do instead. There is, like, I guess you could say, kind of a, uh, uh, an alternative prayer for that if you walk in and the monitors are, are gone, you know. Uh, so typically, like, uh, re, you know, anointing of the sick, extreme unction, uh, even the apostolic pardon, we, we, we will give if they're still at least alive, even if unconscious, you know. Yeah. Wow. And okay. extreme unction is a total absolution of all sin, correct? So extreme uh, extreme unction is really uh, like the last time you would receive the Eucharist, we would say, or viaticum is another word, Ex uh, you know, but extreme unction is like receiving anointing of the sick, receiving communion if possible. Um, the apostolic pardon is, uh, so this really kind of all works together. Anointing of the sick forgives sins, um, especially because if the person is unconscious, obviously they can't confess their sins. So anointing, right. of, the sin, uh, anointing of the sick does forgive all sin. Um, the apostolic pardon is, uh, because of the words it says, it says, I release you from all punishments in this life and the life to come. Um, and that's a given by the church, you know, the authority to bind and loose. And so it says, by the, by the authority given to me by the apostolic see, may, you know, through the mysteries of, of our redemption, may God give you remission of all punishment in this life and the life to come. Um, and so I try to give that, you know, every time I give last rites, you know, we, we would say, which is really an antiquated term, last rites. We, you know, it's, it's not the real technical term anymore for us to use. It's just, right, you know, right. colloquially and culturally, that's what most people associate it with anyway. So we still kind of use it for that. Um, but when I go give like, you know, anointing of the sick for the last time in the hospital, like in CCU or hospice care, you know, I'll always give the apostolic pardon with uh, anointing of the sick. And much of that, especially when I was in my youth and when car accidents were many times more fatal. Yeah. And I'll and we would hear a parish priest who would be called out at all hours of the night to perform last rites. Yeah. Right at the accident scene. Yep. Uh, yeah. You don't hear that, you know, today, as, as certainly as much as I did years yeah. ago. So I think that's where it, it, it pretty much became that very, you know, very uh, terminology, last rites. Yeah. And nonetheless, I'm still prepared for that, too. In my car, in my uh, little center console, I keep a uh, an oil stock with, you know, anointing of the sick oils in there. My stole. The, the, I have I have several copies of 
of the, the, the book Pastoral Care of the Sick, and one stays in my car. That way, like, if I do come up on a car wreck, if it looks bad enough, I will stop. Um, and in that way, you know, if, if I need to give, you know, the last sacraments, I, I'm prepared to do that. So, yeah, you, most priests are prepared. We do keep stuff in our vehicles uh, in the event that, you know, we have to go, you know, like that in an emergency to go anoint somebody who's dying. I know as we're, we're winding down, as we're running yeah. out of time, I, I wanted to touch on another example that the church is relying on the science but is not dependent on the science to decide whether it is genuine or not, though it allows science to perform its due diligence, and that would be the Shroud of Turin. Oh, okay, yeah. And the idea that even with the carbon dating, and that to me, I was at a board meeting in Chicago at that time, with J.L. and Heineck Center for UFO Studies. And one of our scientists on the board was Dr. Michael Soros, who was a professor of uh, natural history and biology at the University, University of Michigan at Kalamazoo. And the team who performed performing the carbon dating, one of the scientists was speaking, uh, Dr. Soros was breaking away from the board meeting because he was getting updates every hour. And I'll never forget how he excitedly came back to the board meeting and he exclaimed that the only explanation they can provide for that image on the outer surface of the fabric was though it was a burst of energy. Yeah. And I, and then I made the comment of Dr. Swords, like a body coming back to life and that's and, and swords went. That's exactly what they told me. Like a body coming back to life. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, but then interesting that it was like they get they got the proverbial phone call from Washington, which was basically, you better not prove that thing genuine. And that was the rumor at the time. And then, as we've learned in recent years, that even the fragment, the fabric that was tested was not of not from the original as far as burial cloth it was the part that had been repaired by the sisters after that fire back in the uh like the 15th century whatever that was the, the case was so and i'll never forget when studio macbeth it was ray downing who did the 3d imagery on the shroud where they came up as far as with the actual full body, 3D, as far as figure based on everything on the shroud. And I was talking to Downing and he said, you know, Don, I was a total agnostic. And what convinced me, it, he said, I cried. I wept like a baby when we discovered that there was muscle tissue on the shroud. Muscle tissue. It wasn't just blood, but there was also, uh, as far as human body tissue. And yeah. so, again, the science, the science that it's beyond even your faith, but the idea that if it proves to be genuine, then who else could it be? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, and that the church still 
excuse me, Britt, but the church still, it doesn't need the science. That's the whole point. That's yeah. what I love about the church, that it's, it still comes down to blessed are those who have not seen, yet they believe. Yeah. Yep. Well said, Don. I'm glad you brought up the Shroud of Turin because a lot yeah. of people don't like talking about it, but that is a key factor that it's like, hello, it's right in front of you and you guys want to keep denying it. It's right in front of you. Don't get me started on carbon dating. That's a whole nother episode because yeah, I, I've gotten in deep with scientists about carbon dating and it's a joke. Or Eucharistic miracles on my end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if any scientist is listening to this episode about carbon dating, please take no offense. I've just have not had good run-ins with those who've worked carbon dating at all and how it works. Um, but on a quick note, as we're wrapping up the show, I do want to circle back because Don knows that this is a creature that I'm obsessed with. I love to bits and pieces to pieces and back. I want to know where does the church stand on Bigfoot? I had a feeling Sasquatch is coming up. <laughs> yes, because I love him to pieces. I, I listen, I will tell you though, Dan, I am not, I, I am not, listen, I'm not one of those people that theorize that it is interdimensional, though I respect their opinions and I love that there's that field work going on and believing that it could be extraterrestrial yeah. in nature, et cetera. But I, I see it more as a physical like animal, like a primate that just yeah. is extremely intelligent. There's, there's history in the Gigantopithecus era that proves the existence of a large ape that can stand seven feet tall, eight feet tall. So I have to know, Father Dan, <laughs> where? Does it stand? Because I, I know it's crazy, <laughs> but it's an animal. So yeah. I just want to know as far as cryptids go, Not we're not talking folklore and fairy tale. That can be yeah. for a, a different night. And for some reason over the years, that line has crossed. Cryptozoology and folklore have crossed, and it never should because <laughs> cryptozoology started as a science to discover animals, like actual living animals, that were said to be extinct or were never known to science. And somehow over the years, they've become as mythological <laughs> as a centaur. And I don't know how they mixed over in that way. So I'm just curious, you gotta tell me, where, <laughs> where do you stand on it as a father? Not even so much the church, but where yeah. you stand and association with the church. Hmm. Uh, well, perhaps maybe the best way is for me to synthesize everything we've already said and to, uh, perhaps to quote Pope Benedict, if Bigfoot has a rational soul and he does in fact exist, I'd be happily the first priest to baptize him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. I hope, that, I hope that's a satisfactory answer. But if, if he does in fact exist and he has a rational soul, he can come to my church any day. I'll baptize him. <laughs> I, will, I will bring him myself. Line up, right. <laughs> Yes, yeah. I will go tomorrow into Ocala and I will I will be hollering all day. I need just one of you, please. Just one. <laughs> I just have to prove it. That's awesome. <laughs> I think honestly, that's the way to end this episode. I think I'm so. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that is like yeah. that is the that is the I you know, chess mate right there. You know what I mean? Like yeah, checkmate. <laughs> Woo! I feel empowered now. I'm going to go find Bigfoot. I, I'm so proud. I have my rosary that I was baptized Catholic. I just feel so empowered by this episode. You have no Fantastic. idea. Oh, yeah. I don't know, Britt, that a rosary would necessarily protect you from a Bigfoot, though. I mean, uh... <laughs> no, but maybe I could be the first to introduce 
the church to a Bigfoot. Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> you you might, never yes. know. <laughs> you never know. They teach primates to read all the time and in sign language. So I, I, that's my goal now. I'm going to be the first to teach a Sasquatch about the Bible. But on another note, I will end on this, on my, on my part, something I always love bringing up when it comes to science and the church. Let us not forget that when the Bible was written, was how many years ago, Father Dan? When the Bible was written, that's a bit of a loaded mm -hmm. question because it's several books that were all written at different times. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, put together, it was at least long enough far back that, you know, science and modern day science and exploration through space was nowhere near explored at that right. time. Right, yeah, yeah. But yet, the Bible says he sits above the sphere. And we all know that a sphere is round and he was talking about the earth. He was sitting above the earth. Now, how in the world without exploration into space would anyone know? Because flat earth theory went around to what, the 17th century? And even still today, there are believers. But yet the word itself said he sat above the sphere, which was earth mm. and earth is round. And knowing that proves that God himself was the creator of our, of our planet and he sat above it as he created it and life on it. That is something I always love to mm -hmm. add in anything when it comes to science in the church. Amen. When they did know what was across the Dead Sea. When they yes. had no concept of being on a planet or what, what uh, their, their very existence comprised of back at that time. So, oh, yes, I've often pointed that out. The fact that the Bible refers to the sphere. Yep. Yeah, it's right there in front of us. And yet we're like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's right there. I literally, I'll highlight it in pink and purple and blue. I will circle it and highlight it for you multiple times. But again, this is the stuff I love. These topics are what I love. I love the fact that the church is involved in such a harmonious way. Harmonious, is that even a word? I think so. If not, Harmonia. I made it up. Harmonious. Harmonious. Harmonia. Britneyisms. My husband calls them Britneyisms. So there you go. You just got one. You're welcome. Um, harmonious. Oh. Plus it's late, guys. Okay. It's late. Um, oh. <laughs> that was my excuse. But I mean, I just love how open-armed they are, how, how, you know, you always feel so welcomed in a church. I mean, granted, when I would go to a Catholic church as a kid, I immediately felt like I needed to repent for everything I did immediately yeah. for stealing yeah. the, you know, the oatmeal cookie out of my grandmother's pantry, because immediately I just felt like I was in this holy place that I didn't feel worthy of. But yeah. I think it's because you're feeling the true energy of God within a building. You're feeling yeah. the real presence. You're feeling and knowing that you are in the house of God. But within that, there's a comfort to know that nothing you could say could make them hate you or anything you could say could make them turn away from you. And I think the public having that to turn to in these types of situations, especially on the paranormal side is extremely comforting to know that even the church says, if it exists, we welcome it. And that is truly incredible. Yep. Don, is there anything you'd like to end with on tonight? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, we, we covered a wide range of uh, uh, topics, not only concerning uh, the church and its involvement, but but uh, especially the their scientific approach. We didn't even get into like the, uh, the visitations 
such as uh, Fatima, uh, Lourdes, uh, Metagorgy, that type of thing. And, and there too, the church's insistence on scientifically yeah. established whether these, in, these um, visitations even took place. So, the, the, I mean, lest the church would ever be accused of uh, just blindly accepting every you know situation involving a member of the flock no it's it's has a 2000 year history mm -hmm. of work in in a very a very harmonious you know relationship as far as with the scientific community unless we forget uh, so many of the great scientists of all time were very devout catholics and at times such as uh, Copernicus and Galileo, where they even rubbed against the church initially. But nonetheless, as they established scientific reality, the church then embraced it. They accepted that mm -hmm. it was a, a part of their own evolution as to what was scientific fact and what was not. Yep. Exactly. Well, Father Dan, I just want to thank you from the deepest part of my heart for coming on the show and having this discussion and being so open-minded, it's actually extremely refreshing to talk to a father about these topics, about these questions in the field of this type of research. And it's really comforting to know that they too have an interest in it and also want to know, you know the data and the, and the details. And I just, I love it. And I'm so thankful that you found the time and made the time to come on our show. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, as someone from Bayou country where the Rougarou is our Bigfoot, yes. you know, uh, is, it, it has been a pleasure to, I, I had to mention that to you. I could not come on here as a Cajun and not mention the Rougarou, you know? So uh, yeah, no, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here and to, to talk with you both about this. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And can you please tell our listeners where they can listen to you on your podcast as the Karate Priest and where they can connect with you on any social media pages? Yes. So uh, on both Facebook and Instagram, the pages are the Karate Priest Podcast. Uh, and if uh, the email for that also is the Karate Priest at gmail.com. I'm always open to questions and especially, you know, sometimes we'll do Q&A episodes on my podcast, just especially, you know, people always have questions for priests, you know, any burning question you've ever wanted to ask a Catholic priest um, or a martial artist priest or a military priest, you know, or you name it, a musician priest, you know, whatever, a Rougarou priest, I don't care, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not the Rougarou, but yeah, the karate priest is, uh, is the page for all of those. Oh, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, Don, I know you'll agree with me, but we have to have him back on because I really do need to dig into some of the historical hauntings and cultures of Louisiana because they do have some crazy stories out of the bayou that I have researched and I that, want to. Yeah. In itself, I agree. I agree. That's oh, yeah. a whole episode. <laughs> yeah, it, oh, look, you can come, come do your research in person. I'll, I'll line up a swamp tour for you too. Yep. Oh, well, that's Don. Don. We're <laughs> yep. going like freaking tomorrow. That's an invitation. We will take advantage yes. of Father. Please do. Absolutely. Well, on, on that note, I want to thank everybody so much for coming out and listening to No Earthly Explanation. Wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast, look us up. Um, our hub is actually anchor.fm forward slash No Earthly Explanation. 
You can find us on anyone, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon Music. You can find us on any one of those. Um, you can also look us up on all of our social pages. Our Instagram is No Earthly Explanation. Facebook, No Earthly Explanation. If you have any emails, questions that you are, you know, burning uh, questions or a personal person that you think we should really have on that really brings interest to you and your hobbies or your field work, please email us at noearthlyexplanation at gmail.com. And then if you'd like to link up with us on our social pages, Don and I both are on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me on Instagram under Brit underscore investigates or on, in, or on Facebook as um, Brit, Brit Barbieri official. And then for Don, you can find him on Instagram at Don47Tom. And then if you really want to get better in contact with him, you can find him on his Facebook page at Donald Raymond Schmidt with an A. And in the meantime, everybody, I just want to thank you again for being constant listeners to our crazy fun podcast. And until the next time, Don, you better get I your Pegasus out of my part. barn. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out of here. Good night, right. Britt. Great as Good always. Night. Yes, thank you. And thank you again, Father Dan. Until next time, everyone, have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please be sure to rate and review this episode. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyright. Any previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Information and opinions stated in this podcast should not be construed as medical advice. Please be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metatomics at metatomics.org or find us on social media for other unique content.